This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. This version of our podcast features George Meyer from the law firm of Carlton Fields in Tampa, Florida. Our subject is a discussion of key legal and practical issues for owners of significant construction projects. Welcome to the podcast, George. Thank you, Buzz. Appreciate the invitation to join you. Now, although you and I have known each other for years, let's begin our discussion today with a quick review of your law practice and your experience. Certainly. Um, Well, as you know, I've been involved in the construction industry for 40-plus years. Uh, Initially, for about the first 10 years, uh, I was a construction engineer uh, working on various projects. Of those 10 years, five years were with an engineering consulting firm in Manhattan, and then uh, after that I went with Getty Oil as a senior engineer with them. Um, uh, It was at Getty Oil that I got the bug to go to law school. Graduated out of law school, uh, moved to Tampa, Florida in 1986, joined the law firm of Carlton Fields, and I've been here ever since. Uh, They've made many attempts to try to blast me out of my desk, but uh, so far they've uh, failed in doing so. Tell us a little bit about the kinds of work, and in particular, a few examples. Sure. Uh, my work initially started off a mixture of uh, construction litigation, construction transactions, and real estate uh, uh, development work. Uh, did a lot of that, uh, a lot of real estate transactional work. Um, but uh, it, it, it evolved over time, um, as it should. And um, uh, for the past 15 years or so, uh, it's been primarily focused on construction transactions. And in particular, large projects. I've had the the pleasure of working on some some pretty monumental projects around the country. Uh, I've worked on literally dozens of arenas, ballparks, stadiums, uh, a host of uh, resort hotels, casinos, uh, hospital complexes, campuses, uh, universities, uh, airports. Uh, we've even worked on uh, you know manufacturing facilities. Uh, pipelines, um, railroads, uh, some of my um, bigger um, uh, stadium arena projects, uh, Barclays Center up in New York, and I'm currently working on the L.A. Rams uh, uh, football stadium out in L.A. Uh, so it's uh, it, it's interesting challenges under those with those type of big projects. Let me mention also to our audience that. You've been very active in a number of construction and property development lawyer groups. 
You've served as the chair of the ABA Forum on Construction Law. You've been the chair of the Florida Bar Real Property Probate and Trust Law Section. And you're a fellow in both the American College of Construction Lawyers and the American College of Real Estate Lawyers. So let me thank you for your service to our industry. Well, it, it's, it's been actually a pleasure, and, and uh, it, though it, it has taken a considerable amount of my time, luckily my partners are very supportive in that area. But i got to be honest, I, I, yeah, I think people who get involved in these types of organizations, you wind up get, taking and getting far more than you're giving. Uh, the, the knowledge, the training that you pick up working with these groups, um, the networking opportunities, and, and even more importantly, just the friendships. Uh, some of my closest friends now are all people who, you know, I got to meet um, being active in these various organizations. So I encourage everybody, you know, you know, to get involved in them. You'll, you'll, I think you'll find them very re- rewarding and, and will help expand your professionalism. Well, let's talk about some of the broad legal issues that confront owners on major construction projects. First, it occurs to me that in some respects, owners are the most important players in the world of construction. And and I, you know that, that that is absolutely right, especially on you know on these big major projects, the the financing, the approval process, all that all of that that goes into the front end. It's it's not uncommon that on these larger projects, the owner will have been working on the project. For years before even the design starts, never mind the construction, and so it does require a very high level of commitment. Um, also, uh, I, from time to time, I teach a, a class on construction contracts, and one of the points I always stress is, you know, that people need to keep in mind that at the beginning of a construction project. All risk, responsibility, liability is with the owner. I mean, 100% of that bundle of sticks of risk, liability, responsibility lies with the owner. Only to the extent that the owner contracts away does that responsibility uh, uh, get moved to another party. So, you know, I think when you start with the concept that everything 100% starts with the owner there, that sort of reinforces that. That, that concept that maybe the, you know, the other players are very important, but uh, the, the owner, I think, is the key um, because, because they're the ones who you know, decide to proceed forward with, the, uh, with pursuing the project. They also, I believe, set the tone. I mean, you know, you know are, are we going to have a, uh, a reasonable, cooperative, collaborative approach to the project and, and how it proceeds, or is it going to be aggressive and adversarial from the get-go? The owner has a lot to say about how that tone is going to get set initially. You've recently written an unusual paper on this subject. Tell us a little about that. Well, it, it really wasn't a paper that I wrote. This all goes to a... Um, program that will be uh, presented uh, at the forums meeting up in Montreal in a couple of weeks. And there, there was a panel of us, uh, myself, uh, Adrian Bastinelli, uh, Jose Piancagora, Susanna Fodder, and, and Jennifer Fletcher. And we were asked to, you know, 
to discuss uh, what, are, what would be the best practices that an owner should consider uh, to, who wants to try to enhance the, the odds of having a successful project? You know, what would, you know, namely, I, we took it from the approach of if we had a friend who was saying, I'm going to have a, a big project and, and we wanted to tell them, you know, what to keep an eye out for, what, what are some of the more important issues uh, to be considering, you know, that these are the types of comments that we would share with them. And each of us on the panel was interviewed, in essence, talking about certain key risk issues and factors uh, that we make comments on. So our comments were collected then by the two co-chairs for the program who organized them around topic centers and then developed a, a paper out of the uh, out of our our comments and uh and so that that's the paper that uh, you're talking about well i had a, a chance to read the paper and i i found it not only an interesting approach but thought it was really informative for example one of the comments that you made early on in the paper was with regard to the connection between project success and what you call project relationships what do you mean by that well, it, it goes to, um, maybe the best way of explaining that is a comment that um, Jose Pinktagora made in, in his responses, which he, where he said, you know, a construction project is like a marriage. And, you know, if you want to have a, a successful pro, uh, uh, project, like a successful marriage, it's all about the relationships of the parties. You know, do they trust each other? Are they comfortable with each other? Are they cooperative with each other? And, uh, you know, if you want to, you know, at least my feeling, and I think the feeling of the other panelists, uh, um, was that uh, you greatly enhance and improve your odds of having a successful project. Uh, the more there is a good, uh, re friendly relationship among the parties where, where they trust each other and, and they, they, they're... Uh, talking to each other on a regular basis uh, and, uh, and cooperating and collaborating with each other. That that's, you know, if you want something, you know, to identify as, gee, what would maybe one of the biggest um, um, things an owner can do to really enhance having a successful project is having that really good relationship among all the players of the project. You also make what I thought was an interesting point calling owners novices in the world of construction. I guess I would have thought that was not the case, especially with regard to the types of projects that you work on. Well, you know, it, it, you know people say that, but, you know, you need to stop and think about, you know, is this a type of project they do regularly over and over again? And the answer is no, it's not. I mean, even when you start getting into airports or uh, hospitals or resort hotels, I mean, typically you're dealing with a developer, and you know this this may be the only stadium he'll ever build. Uh, for for instance, on, on sports facilities, it's not uncommon that the team owner will create an LLC entity to act as the developer, and that developer will then enter into agreements with the governmental bodies uh, for funding and for you know responsibilities for constructing the facility and leasing it and handling all of those. But you're dealing with 
a team owner who's never built a stadium before. And I, I, I see it all the time. Even like I'm currently working on a fairly large hospital complex that is adding a 10-story surgical tower and, and all sorts of ancillary buildings. I mean, it's a massive uh, project for them. Now, they have an in-house facility staff that is very strong, but they're strong and experienced in handling sort of the day-to-day maintenance and maybe renovation projects, things of that nature. They, they are not experienced in building a 10-story medical surgical building. I mean, uh, so it's, I, I really truly think one of the first things I do when I get involved uh, from an owner's side on a project is ask the owner to really evaluate what are your internal strengths and, and resources. Who, who do you have in-house that uh, you know has has experience on this particular type of project that you're about to enter into, and you know to the extent that they don't have, we really need to be looking at bringing in an owner's rep or a construction somebody to uh, supplement and augment that um, that lack of internal uh, experience. Well, let's talk a little about contractor selection and what goes into the owner's analysis of how they make that kind of decision. And and let me add that it may be one thing for an owner to consider who they want based on a name brand or a recommendation, but how does an owner really vet a contractor? Well, you know, again, since the context is these larger projects, it, it really all comes down to experience. Um, there's usually going to be a short list of contractors who have the experience in that particular type of project that you're looking to build. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe as, as small of a pool as six or eight contractors, really. And so, you know, what you, where you start, if you're the owner, is shortlisting um, who it is you want to even talk to. And you want to talk to people who have the experience, who've built your type of project before many times. Um, and so that's typically where, we, where we'll start. And, and, and then as an owner, you know, talk to, once you start getting your short list together, um, you're going to go out with an RFQ, request for qualifications, and those, those parties that you've shortlisted will respond back with, you know, their strengths and what they have done and, and, and all that's nice. But, you know, probably one of the next biggest things an owner should do is call the references, call the other projects where, you know, the, this contract is saying, I have experience, I've worked on A, B, and C projects, call A, B, C, and projects and talk with them and find out what was, what was your experience like? You know, was it, you know, something that, you know, was it like going to the dentist and having root canal work or was it something that was, uh, uh, I, 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 we never use the word pleasant in connection with a large construction project, but something that, uh, that you felt was reasonable and, and cooperative and, and, uh, and, 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 and successful that, you know, that you felt that you had a, a, fully engaged partner with you on the project who had the necessary knowledge and experience to actually deliver what they were promising. So something maybe more in the nature of uh, getting your teeth whitened as opposed to getting a root canal, huh? Exactly. Uh, 
let, let me ask you a question that's occurred recently in, in my practice with regard to contractor selection, and, and that is an owner that I'm working with gets the sense that although they've hired a brand-name contractor, they're not getting the A-team. Can that be a common problem? Oh, absolutely. And, and I warn owners against that, not just for the contractor, but for the designer. That, you know, when, you, when the owner is looking at either picking the designer for the project or the contractor, as I said, you'll shortlist, the, the team will come in, and, and they will have a beautiful PowerPoint presentation and a beautiful horse and pony show and, you know, show you all this experience, and, and that's all nice. But, you know, what you want to do is drill down and say, okay, what is this specific bench you're going to put on my project? Who are the people that are actually going to do the design work? Who are the people who are actually going to do the uh, construction uh, management work on this project? What's their experience? What's your level of depth? Uh, one of the things I've been seeing over the past five years, I mean, uh, since the recovery from the downturn in 2009 where, where you know everything just sort of came to a stop, we've been building and building and it's been getting more and more active and the, the result is is that you know uh, contractors and designers I've seen who used to have really strong depth of bench I call it you know where you know they would have put on the project you know not only the, the, they had the first guy there uh, or gal who was you know quite capable of running your project for you. They were there, but the next two or three people in line behind them were just as good or just as capable. And so you really had, uh, a, a, you know, not only the A-team, but an A-team with depth. And lately I've been seeing, um, you know, situations where, okay, maybe the first person is the A-team, but then when you start looking behind them, there really is no bench behind them. That they've got people who've got either no experience in this type of project that are working for them, um, you know, or very limited experience, or just fairly new. And so, uh, you know, you really need to, you know, take a look at who's being assigned, who's being dedicated, and have they contractually agreed to commit them, uh, so that you know these are the people you've got. Because, because th th at the end of the day, that's who's really doing the work for you. Uh, you know, you know, the name of the design firm, the name of the contract, very nice, got, got, you know, got the, uh, you know, the star quality name, very nice, but the star quality name isn't going to do the work. It's the people. I do want to touch on the role of owner's representatives. Do your clients use them? And do you think that they're effective in guiding an owner through a complex construction process? Well, again, in the context of the, the larger projects, uh, I think in, in the vast majority of the cases, they're not only effective, but absolutely necessary. As we touched on earlier, you know, it's not uncommon that even though these owners may be very sophisticated, you know, you know a Fortune 100 corporation, a uh, you know NFL team, a, a major hospital, national hospital. Uh, that doesn't mean they really have the knowledge and experience of of how to oversee and manage a big, massive uh, construction project. And so it really becomes essential for them to bring in that that type of um, 
either owner's rep or program management. Uh, I've I've advised a number of clients from time to time about the benefit of bringing on program managers. If we're dealing with a very large, multi-phased, complex uh, program of projects, um, uh, that bringing in a, a consultant that has that experience in all those types of projects that can help you prepare overall schedules and, and manage all the various contracts that will be involved. Uh, you know, huge benefit, I think, uh, for the owner. Okay, George, that was, that was interesting about owner's reps, but let's move a little on to some brass tax kinds of issues. Owners and payments. Money's the lifeblood of the project, so what are the issues that owners need to consider here? Well, you know, they've they, they got to be reasonable. I mean, uh, when, when we're dealing with the payment stream, what the contractor is looking for is certainty. That, you know, we, you know, we may get into a disagreement on the project, and, and, and that disagreement may have a $50,000 impact. Well, you don't hold back a $500,000 payment application over a disagreement of a $50,000 item. You know, if you're the owner, you know, okay, sure, deduct the fifty thousand off and you know, and and approve the balance of the pay application. But let's keep the funds flowing. Uh, if you start, if an owner starts getting heavy-handed and unreasonable, you know, takes the position of, well, the only way I get their attention is if I just shut off the the the, the money completely. And so I have a contract that says, you know what, if if I'm not satisfied with this, that, or the other thing. I get to withhold payment completely until you make me satisfied. Well, you, you start playing that game, uh, and the next thing that's going to happen is it has a huge impact on morale. Nobody really wants to be working on your project at that point. Uh, you got subcontractors who are the ones who are going to get hurt the most by the lack of funding, because they're they're in the weakest position to have to carry these uh, these expenditures over months. Then uh, they're not in the and what's going to, they're going to start migrating to other projects. They're going to say, hold on, I'm not getting paid here. Well, you know, let's send our people over to these other two projects we've got going where I'm actually getting paid. And, and it can really have a, a domino effect on uh, the entire uh, progress of the, of the um, project. Clearly, the owner needs to have reasonable control over you know not being forced to pay for things that haven't been done yet or done right, but the, you know you, you got to bring a voice of reason into that. Another key for a lot of owners, it seems to me, is schedule. You know that old saying about time is money. So a lot of owners want tough liquidated damages for delay provisions, but are those a good thing for the process? Well, Buzz. The, it, it, it can have a very adverse effect on the project. If the owner has set the uh, liquidated damages at a very high rate, and, and uh, we're dealing with big projects, I realize, and therefore the potential damages to the owner if the project's late will be significant. But so the owner is looking at trying to recover all those damages or even a significant portion, they'll have rates that just can't be supported by um, the economics of the project in the sense of the, from the contractors and the subcontractors' point of view. The, 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 the contractor uh, 
will look for some type of limitation or cap on those LDs. And if they're trying to pass down to the subs very high liquidated damages, it, it can have an adverse effect either upon the, the subcontractor's pricing, you know, because they'll, they'll increase their pricing because of what they see as a much higher risk, or they may just decide not even to pursue the project. And, and uh, so you'll have a lack of interest and response from possibly the better subcontractors because they have other alternatives to go to. But we were talking about uh, this a little bit before the podcast, and that is from the contractor's perspective, uh, a liquidated damages provision can be a, a good financial and accounting way to understand what will be the costs if the contractor gets behind schedule. Oh, absolutely. Um, I had a contractor once said, they, they, they were telling me how they didn't like liquidated damages. I, I, I told them it was crazy. I said, it's a great risk management tool, especially when compared to what the alternative is. If there are no liquidated damages, that means the contract is subject to actual damages. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the owner's actual damages typically are far in excess of what the liquidated damages would have provided for. One thing that I think owners often underestimate are the number of decisions and uh, timeliness of those decisions that have to be made during the course of construction. What can owners do to prepare themselves for meeting that obligation? Well, and, and, and again, this goes to what's their level of experience. Do they have people in-house who have been through the process before and so can appreciate and know what questions to ask so that when schedules are being put together, asking the contractor to identify in the schedule all those places where the owner's input or decision will be required so that the owner can know in advance when they'll be asked to do something or provide something. Uh, that becomes, I think, critical. Uh, a lot of times the owners, you know, don't know. They don't know when, you know, it, it's like the day of they're being told we need X, Y, and Z. And so, so they're kind of rattled and they wonder, well, why are you just telling me this now? Uh, you know, because they didn't know enough to ask these type of questions well up front. And, you know, but if they've got experienced in-house people, they've got an experienced uh, owner's rep who, who who's appreciates all of these things, hopefully they're alerting the owner that these things will be coming down the pike at them. George, let me ask you about one of the issues that commonly comes up in construction contract negotiation, and that is that um, contractors often want a waiver of consequential loss provision put in the contract to protect their interests. How do you counsel owners in that regard? Well, I, I, I typically will tell the owner that that's, that's the, the state of uh, the contract uh, uh, risk allocation in today's market. That is from a, just a practical standpoint, that is the norm. Um, the uh, Having exposure for consequential damages to a contractor uh, could be potentially a company killer if, you know, if they don't uh, uh, limit that type of exposure. And given the slim margins that most contractors work on, it just makes no economic sense to take that type of potentially huge 
uh, liability exposure on, um, even though it may, it may be very limited and very um, uh, unlikely to occur, if it does occur, as I said, it, it can just you know, cripple your company if, if not put it under. And so uh, I, I, I believe the, the state of the uh, industry is such that, that that's, that's the norm now. And, and you know, if, if you're an owner and you're trying to push that away, I, I, I think you're going to probably wind up with uh, either a very desperate contractor or a poor contractor who don't, doesn't know what they're doing, quite frankly, especially on larger projects, a contractor willing to accept that type of thing, as well as of the impact it would have downstream on, on the subs, I mean, uh, I, the, I, I know a lot of subs who would just walk away from the project and say, I, I ain't pursuing that you, if I don't have a waiver of consequential. Now, I know the, you know, they, they like to call it and say it's a mutual waiver. It r really isn't. The owner is giving up far more. But as I said, I, I think that that's the state of the industry. Well, let me ask you about another contract clause that you often see up for negotiation, and that is notice provisions. Owners are notorious for wanting these to be short. Yeah, and, and, and there, you know, there, there's a reason for that, and, and, and it's, a, it's, it's not unreasonable uh, uh, provision, which is, namely, if I don't know about the situation, I can't take any action to try to correct it or mitigate it. So if you're not telling me about something that is creating a, a potential claim uh, down the road until you know, a month later when it's too late to, for me to do anything about it, uh, that's not very helpful. What we push back, when I represent contractors, and what we push back on the notice are the extremely short notice provisions that really are cleared to and clearly intended to be a forfeiture provision. It, it, you know, it, it's a sort of a gotcha. Well, you know, unless you, you provided written notice within 24 hours of the, the occurrence of the event, you're deemed to have waived the claim then. Well, hold it. You know, 24 hours of the occurrence, I may not even have knowledge of it yet. It occurred and it hasn't even gotten to me yet, never mind that it's only 24 hours. And the other aspect of that notice, besides just being patently unfair and not really consistent with the way one would normally administer a construction contract out there, but it also creates a situation where the contractor needs to be adversarial from day one. That you know, you, you almost have to they'd have to put somebody on, a clerk of works or somebody, who's gonna his sole job is just to send letters each day. This may be a problem. This may be a problem. <laughs> we reserve our rights. We yeah you know, and, and you know you're creating a very negative attitude in the in the project, and another detriment I think to those type of provisions is that you're preventing the contractor from trying to more fully identify and hopefully mitigate, if not completely avoid the the, the claim event. That you're giving, you're not giving the contractor any time to go talk to the impacted subs to find out what what's the problem, what's the issue, what can we do, can we move something here or there to to get around this. None of that is available because guess what? I got to get my notice. Everything's focused on get the notice out because. Um, so I, I really, you know, I, when I, when I represent owners, I, I really tell them that it's good to have a prompt notice. But let, let's let's make sure we're we're not uh, you know you know creating an environment here where 
it, it, the parties will be at each other's throats from day one. As a final subject matter for our podcast, let's talk a little bit about dispute resolution, and I, I have two questions. The first one is dispute resolution boards. Have you used them, and have you found them to be worthwhile? I've used them on a couple of big projects. Um, uh, tell you the truth, uh, th- you know, there's certain elements that, that have to be present, I think, in order for a DRB to be effective. Uh, one is first a clear scope of what the responsibilities of the DRB will be. What type of disputes will they be addressing? Uh, secondly, I think you need knowledgeable um, dispute resolution board members. And by knowledgeable, I'm not talking about necessarily just construction litigators. Uh, you need people who are knowledgeable in what the norms are in uh, construction contract administration, people who understand the, the, the gives and takes and the whole process, and that hopefully can bring that reasonable approach to the resolution of the issue at hand. And then lastly, you, know, you need complete buy-in from everybody. The owner's got to buy in, the contractor, the designer, everybody's got to buy in saying, okay, where I've used DRBs, it's been, quite frankly, on projects where they're on a fast track the, and the design is in development as the work is already commencing. And so it becomes super critical that we can't have a breakdown in the process over an argument in the design, namely what, what should be included, what isn't included, you know, that was to be, you know, you know part of the scope, no, that's an extra. And so I, where I've used DRBs has been in those type of projects where whereby the parties can make their pitch, a decision is made as to what is or isn't going to be in the design, and that'll freeze up then the designers to finish up their design and get going with the parties reserving their rights that, you know, you can, you can, after the project, you want to further, you know, litigate this uh, um, or arbitrate it over, you know, whether or not the DRB got it right, knock yourselves out. Most times no one bothers at that point. But the whole idea is we, we can't hold the project hostage over that type of issue. We got it. We, we need an answer so that people can then proceed. The second question that I was going to ask you about dispute uh, resolution um, has to do with the question of arbitration versus litigation. What are you advising owners in that regard? Well, it depends. A typical lawyer's answer. If I'm dealing with a public body, it's almost unquestionably going to be litigation. They're, they're, you know, they're going to have no interest in arbitration. Um, you know, they, 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 they'll very much believe that, uh, you know, they've got the hometown advantage in the hometown courts and uh, with the hometown jury. And so, it, 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 you know, that, that's never even a consideration. And as I point out to the public owner clients, I deal with it. So if later a dispute comes up, which really screams for arbitration, that just makes reasonable sense. The parties can always agree to arbitrate it at that time, but going in, uh, the public owners typically always go with litigation uh, as the uh, dispute resolution procedure in the contract. Now, private projects, they, uh, we, we get into all sorts of factors. One, one of the ones I often will start with is uh, you know, I'll ask the owner's general counsel, what is your preference? What has been your experience? I mean, I've had some general contractors, uh, well, some 
general um, counsel, uh, uh, you know, say, you know, who, you know, say that in their experience, uh, they, they only, you know, use arbitration. And others have said, well, I only use litigation. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably go ahead with what they're, what, what they're, they feel comfortable with, what they have used and, are, and know about. Um, and that will be the process that we'll seek to get put into the contract. Um, but, um, you know, there, there, there's a host of other facts. What's the nature of the project? Is it one that's so complex that maybe having a an arbitration panel made up of people who are really knowledgeable in that particular area makes the most sense because we won't have to worry about trying to educate, you know, some judge who uh, up until they, your case came in front of them has handled, uh, you know, uh, simple uh, contract matters uh, or... Uh, uh, civil suits. So, uh, so uh, I, I, I really think that it, it, you know that decision, litigate, arbitrate, is, is almost taken on a case by case. And if you're going to arbitrate, you know, really get good uh, uh, arbitration terms in your contract. Really think it out. I mean, the purpose of to arbitrate is to hopefully be speedier, quicker, and whatever, you know, you really need to give some consideration to the terms you're putting into your contract then, you know, even to the point of maybe, you know, pre-selecting the arbitrators um, so that, you know, you know that you're getting a, a really qualified panel to begin with. George, that's been extremely interesting, and I really appreciate your time today. Thanks again for being with us. Happy to do it, Buzz. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.